You see, even in God's providence, our sermon today is First Timothy chapter 1. And um, it is one of those passages that it helps us and shed light on how we interpret the Old Testament as scriptures. So the application, I entitled the sermon today, The Application of God's Law. The Application of God's Law. As we think about God's law in the Old Testament, we have to recognize that there are numerous laws that we modern Christians, sometimes we, we violate with certain regularity. Um, for instance, uh, Deuteronomy 22, 5, a woman must not wear men's clothing or a man wear woman's clothing. I mean, we, I, I know you have changed uh, clothes with your spouse sometimes. <laughs> um, Leviticus 19.32 is stand up in the presence of the aged. I don't think many of us do that when someone that is older come to us. Um, Leviticus uh, 19.28, do not put a tattoo, marks on yourselves. It's another one. Deuteronomy 14.8, the pig, and this one is the one that is catchy to me. The pig is also unclean, although it has divided roof, it does not chew on the cud, you are not to eat their meat, nor touch their carcasses. I mean, we all enjoy a good bacon. We all, just this week, we, I had some really good pulled pork, and I'm thankful for that. So while we tend to ignore such laws, there are other Old Testament commandments that we latch on, that we latch on to them as the moral bedrocks of our Christian behavior. So this will be familiar to you, for instance, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we do that, and we ask people to do that. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Deuteronomy 5.18. You shall not commit adultery. So why do we adhere to some laws and ignore others? Which laws are valid and which ones are not? Many Christians today are puzzled by the interpretive problem of the law. How do we apply the law as New Testament believers? Some of us take the approach of simply skimming through legal text and skipping over all the laws that did not seem to apply to us. And sometimes we choose to ignore the laws completely. Then we encounter one that does not that, that does seem to make sense to, in today's world, we grab it, underline it, and use it as a guideline for a living. Surely this willy-nilly approach to interpreting the Old Testament law is inadequate. But how should we interpret the law? To complicate this scenario, there are many false teachers in the world that will use God's law and misapply and completely twist it. I remember when I first started studying this, how to interpret the Bible, um, I had a, an encounter with a pastor that was adamantly bringing Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman should not wear men's clothing, to say that women that wear jeans, they were in sin. Because jeans was invented for men only. What? You know, it, it is the twisting of Scripture. So these false teachers are out there um, saying that, uh, misapplying Scripture, 
and particularly the Old Testament, to make to fit their own interpretation. So this was the case in 1 Timothy, in the church of Ephesus. There were false teachers that were misusing the law, and the last time that um, Dylan walked us through um, chapter 1, verse 3 and 7, and today we're going to be covering verses 8 through 11. He spoke of these false teachers that were misapplying and misinterpreting God's law. And Paul is giving some guidance on how then we should move. So uh, let us stand up and, and read our text today. Um, so 1 Timothy. I'm going to back up a little bit and read from verse 3 so you get the whole context of where we are at in our letter. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. This says the word of God. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths or endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. Rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some man is straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they did not understand either what they are saying nor the matters about which they are making confident assertions. But we know that the law is good, and if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you may see. Gracious Father, we're thankful for your kindness toward us to not leave us without instruction. We're thankful for your word that is clear. We just need to understand it better. And I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, we you help us to do just that. How do we apply your law to our lives today? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So for many years, the traditional approach to interpreting the law, the Old Testament law, has been to emphasize distinction between moral and civil and ceremonial laws. The moral laws were those defined to dealt with timeless truths regarding God's intention for human behavior. For instance, love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a moral law. It's a good example of that. And we had the civil laws. We're describing aspects that we normally see in a country legal system. So these laws dealt with courts, with economics, with lands and crimes and the punishment for those crimes. An example of a civil law can be found in Deuteronomy 15.1. Um, and I, you don't have to read all those. I just put in there just 
just so if you want to check it out. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. That's a civil law. This is regulating the society. Um, and then they had the ceremonial laws, which were defined by those who dealt with sacrifices or festivals or priestly activities. An example of that is Deuteronomy 16, 13, which instructed the Israelites to celebrate this festival of the tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. So during harvest time, they had this Feast of Booths. So that was a ceremonial law. Well, under this approach, these distinctions between moral, civil, and ceremonial were critically important because the identification allowed the believer to know whether or not the law applied to them. Well, moral laws, according to this system, were universal and timeless. They're still applied as law to Christian believers today. But civil and ceremonial laws, however, they applied only to ancient Israel, not only to, but not to the believers today. This system has been helpful to many, providing a methodology whereby texts such as love your neighbor as yourself, for instance, can still be claimed as a law for the Christian, while other texts dealing with sacrifices and, pun and punishments can be dismissed. However, this approach is not satisfactory. First, the distinctions between moral, civil, and ceremonial laws appear to be arbitrary. There's no such distinction in the texts as we read it. For example, if you turn to Leviticus 19.18, Leviticus 19.18, it is that verse which says, um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that one, we say, oh, we ought to obey this one. Um, and then verse 20, oh, uh, should we see verse 18 as applicable? So Verse 18 is the one, love your neighbor as thyself. But then the following, the very next verse is, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of materials. I mean, we're just looking around. I'm sure <laughs> that we're, many of us are just breaking that just now. Should we see verse 18 as applicable to us, but dismiss verse 19 as non-applicable? The text does not give any indication, um, no indication whatsoever that any kind of interpretive shift has taken place between these two verses. So in our text today, we will study the application, the law to us as believers living in the 21st century. As New Testament saints, we are under a new covenant but we still relate to the whole Old Testament. That's why we're going through 1 Samuel, because both are inspired by God and useful, including the law. We will see three foundational applications of God's law to keep us from doctrinal or interpretive error. So in verse 8, this is our first point here, is a positive application of the law. It's a positive application of the law. So 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
So mention of God's law here in this verse leads Paul to a short discourse, discourse that is the true character and purpose of the law. Law basically means the teaching, and it includes all the written instructions of the Old Testament, which God has given to the ancient people in that covenant relationship he had with Israel. The law covers the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the wise men of Israel. The ten words or commandments, the ten commandments that we, as we uh, call them, form the core of this body of literature as some of these following verses that um, even Paul is going to discuss some of the breaking of those commandments. The phrase introduction um, introduced the assertion, but we know, and Paul uses that specifically because it's, it's to introduce a statement which the writer can assume will be generally acceptable to those who is addressing and to whom he has in mind. On the other hand, the false teachers did not know, but we know. This is reading verse 7. He says that there's all these people, these false teachers, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know. We understand the law in a proper way. That's what Paul is getting at here. As Paul observes, the law itself is good. If it used properly or lawfully, this is the same word if you turn to 2 Timothy, just flip a few pages there, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, uh, where he's comparing the Christian walk with uh, this competition as an athlete. So 2.5 says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So according to the rules is the expression there, according to the law, according to the regiments of um, that sport. So that is in keeping with God-intended purposes. So this is a word play in the original Greek. Like This is good. It is good because the law... It's been used lawfully. It's used in a way that is um, correct. So this law, in the narrow sense, was being mishandled by the religious teachers in Ephesus, and the result that quite wrong ideas were being spread about. So Paul is engaged in a simple, direct piece of defense where he says, we know that the law is good. The law is good because it reflects the goodness of God, whose author it is. I praise God for his sovereignty. I had um, Jake Evans this morning talking about the word of God, right? And, and some of the passages, such as Psalm 119, that extols the beauty of God's word and its usefulness for us. So Psalm 119, verse 68, uh, it says, You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Because God is good, his word is good to us. Uh, Micah chapter 2 verse 7 says, Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? So for those who walk, who obey God, who follow his word, it does good to us. But the law will only yield its blessings if a man uses it properly. This means that people must understand the true intention of the law and recognize its limitations too. 
It was never meant to provide us a, mean by, a means by which people can justify or ingratiate themselves before God. It was not to earn salvation. Since the Old Testament law is tightly intertwined with the Mosaic Covenant, it is important to make several observations about the nature of this covenant. So I got here and I copied some of this on your notes, in the sermon notes there, um, from actually the same authors of this book, some things where he makes assertions on how do we look at the Old Covenant? How do we look at the law? So one of the first assertions is the Mosaic Covenant is closely associated with Israel's conquest and occupation of the land. So the covenant provides the framework by which Israel can occupy and live prosperly with God in the promised land. There is a close connection between the covenant and the land, and it is stressed over and over in Deuteronomy. Indeed, the Hebrew word for land is found 197 times just in Deuteronomy. So there is a connection. Now, we are not living in the land of Israel. We are not Israelites, at least most of us. I don't know, I mean, someone here with a Jewish background. Um, and then second statement, the Mosaic Covenant is no longer a fo- functional covenant. The New Testament believers are no longer under the old Mosaic Covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, we're not going to read the, the whole chapter, but it makes clear that Jesus came as the mediator of a new covenant that replaced the old. So verse 8, um, chapter 8, verse 13 Jesus call it, uh, by calling this covenant new, because he's saying that it's instituted the new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. So if the old covenant's no longer valid, how can the laws that made up the covenant still be valid? If the old covenant is obsolete, should we not also view the system of laws and comprise the old covenant as obsolete? Uh, Third statement here, the Old Testament law as part of the Mosaic Covenant is no longer applicable over us as law. Now let me explain this. Paul makes it clear that Christians are not under the Old Testament law as the Israelites were. For example, in Galatians, let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. Paul's going to explain that. The way we relate... To the Old Testament is different than we used to, that we relate to the New Testament. Both are inspired word of God, useful, profitable for teaching. Um, Galatians chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 15 and 16. Galatians 1, 2, um, uh, 15 and 16. He writes, But we know... Um, Uh, is it chapter 3? <laughs> um, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though um, it is only a man's covenant, yet it has been ratified. No one sets it aside or adds condition to it. Now the promises, no, I think it is uh, chapter 2. <laughs> um, yeah, 
It is chapter 2, verse 15, 16. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even with we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ um, and not by the works of the law. The same thing is repeated in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Paul states that you also died to the law through the body of Christ. And then likewise, um, now cha Galatians chapter 3, if you're still there, look at verse 24. Galatians 3, 24. And thus Paul states in there, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. By now, that faith has come and we're no longer under tutor. So we're not longer under this guardian, this person that is going to take us to Christ because we have found him. Paul argues forcefully against Christians returning to the Old Testament law. In our interpretation and application of the law, we must be cautious to heed Paul's admonition. Not that we are freed from the law through Christ. We do not want to put people back under the law through our interpretive method. And here's a, a, a passage that maybe puzzle us for a little bit. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. It's an important text for our understanding this. How do we apply the Old Testament law? Matthew 5, 5.17. Jesus makes a very bold statement. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So, is Jesus then contradicting Paul? that he's not, he did not come to abolish the law? I don't think so. First of all, note that the phrase, the law and the prophets, is a reference to the entire of the Old Testament. So Jesus is not just speaking about the Mosaic law. Also note that the antithesis is not between abolish and observe. It is between abolish and fulfill. So Jesus does not claim that he has come to observe the law, um, or to keep the law, rather, that he has come to fulfill it. Matthew uses the Greek word translated as fulfill numerous times, and it normally means to bring it to its intended meaning. Jesus came to bring it to its intended meaning. Jesus is not just stating the law is eternally binding on the Old Testament believers. If that was the case, we would be required to keep the sacrificial and ceremonial laws, as well as the moral ones. This is clearly against the New Testament teaching. What Jesus is saying is that he did not come to sweep away the righteous demands of the law, but that he came to fulfill the righteous demands of that law. He fulfills all the righteous demands in the prophetic foreshadowing of the law and the prophets, what the prophets prophesied. Jesus is not advocating the continuation of the traditional Jewish approach of adherence to the law, nor he is advocating that we dismiss the law altogether. 
He's proclaiming that we must reinterpret it, the meaning of the law in light of his coming, in light of the profound changes in the new covenant that the new covenant brought to us. Then this leads us to our last principle. We must interpret the law through the grid of the New Testament teaching. So 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, passage that well, not, well known to us is all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul certainly is including the law in his phrase when he says all is scripture. As part of God's word, the value of the Old Testament law is eternal. We should study and seek to apply all of it However, the law no longer functions as the term of the covenant for us because we're not Israelites, we're not under the old covenant. And does it no longer applies as direct literal law for, to us? The coming of Christ is the fulfillment of the law, has changed that forever. However, the Old Testament legal material contained rich principles and lessons for living that are still relevant when interpreted through the New Testament teaching. So, if you come to our class, Sunday school class, you're going to get this more in depth of how then we get to read some of the passages, such as not wearing the um, clothes with different fibers. How do we apply that to us? So it's going to leave you with that curiosity. But it is different the way that applies to us as New Testament believers than they applied to the people back then. As the psalmist puts it, the law of God is perfect. Paul wrote in Romans 7, 10, 12, he says, the law is holy. How about we go there? Um, Romans 7, verse 12. I want you to see this. Paul is saying, you know, the law is a good thing. There is a, it's a positive thing. Why is it good? It's good when someone applies it and interprets it correctly. Romans 7, verse 12. Paul says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It is something um, good for us. Now, moving to our second point here, there is a negative application of the law. And I, I think Paul really clarifies to us, so the, how then does it apply to us? First Timothy chapter 2. Uh, one, let's go back to our text, verse 9. Paul's, Paul spells out a major function of the law when he says, realizing the fact that law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Who is the law made for? For the lawless and rebellious. When Paul denies the law that the law is appointed for good, um, literally righteous people, he's not denying that the law has any positive uses. Otherwise, his teaching on the law elsewhere would be in conflict what he, with what he says here. He's stating that people have nothing to fear from God's law so long as they live by it. He's focusing attention rather than one particular use of the law has. That is, to identify, and this is important, is to identify the human disobedience and to convince people that they're lawbreakers. 
It is to identify human disobedience and to convince people that they are lawbreakers. The law has a convicting. It has this restraining function in human life. Yet at all the times, Paul incorporates the law within the teaching of the Christian life, where it functions as one of the moral authorities that shows the Christian the way they should live. But it's, it still operates as a cautionary restraint on the Christian by warning him against sin. When the apostle speaks of lawless and rebels there in verse uh, 10, no, verse 9, um, he's using two very general terms which are meant to include all violators of God's law, no matter how they break it. These two categories are meant to introduce his little discourse on the law. Now he's going to be referring to specific commandments that are broken by these people. The law is intended, one, in one hand, to show God's restraint of sin. God's restraint of sin. God's law helps us to recognize the boundaries between good and evil so that we might avoid sin. Actually, this is a function of any type of law. For example, think about speed limit signs. I think we, we all know those. Why, why do they exist? Um, why are they there? They exist because of reckless drivers on the road that need to be restrained. In this sense, the law, it is written for lawbreakers. This is why Paul said in verse 9, It is not meant for the righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful. Paul pointed to specific sins in verses 9 through 10, murder, sexual immorality, lying, and these sins seem, seem to correlate with ways which were prone to break the Ten Commandments. The law helps us to identify and restrain these sins in our lives. Now, I want to give you um, an example here. You know, we all know uh, working with children. I just remember even in VBS, we're, we're trying to train them. We're giving them the instruction to follow and say, don't, don't interrupt the teacher. Just raise your hand when we want to say something. Don't blurt out a word when you're, you know, don't interrupt anyone when they're talking. Wait for your turn. Raise your hand. And they do, you know, they, they pay attention, and the, the, at some point there, they raise their hand, but they just start talking again. It's easy to break those laws, and though the law is able to restrain sin, it is not able to assure that we're going to keep obeying. Romans 7, 7 says, I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. So how do we know that something is a sin? Well, when we see in a scripture that tells us about that. So the law was broken. And it is the, all, the same in all of our lives. The law says, don't do this. And it may restrain us temporarily. But eventually we sin, all of us. Our predisposition to sinning leads to a second use of the law. The law is also intended to show God's condemnation of the sinner. It is intended to show the condemnation of the sinner. When we sin, the law becomes a testimony against us, showing us how we have disobeyed. And we have not only disobeyed a teacher <laughs> in Sunday school who said, don't interrupt the teacher, 
we've disobeyed the eternal, infinitely holy, just judge of all sin. That law makes our rebellion apparent, and this realization is an essential part of our salvation. Before we come to Christ, we stand before the law condemned by God. We have not kept his law. In fact, we cannot keep his law. The law opens our eyes to the fact that we are guilty before God. But then when we look to Christ, who has kept the law of God perfectly, we see that he is righteous before God. In response, we cry out, I need him. I need this man who obeyed the law perfect on my behalf. And that's how we are saved. That's the gospel. Christ, the law keeper, has paid the penalty for us law breakers. The law doesn't save us. The law leads us to Christ and he saves us. The great reformer Martin Luther described the law as a hammer in his commentary to Galatians. He described it as a hammer that breaks the proud and obstinate hypocrites. And he even adds, what is the purpose of this humbling, bruising, and beating down? It serves to bring us into grace. It serves to bring us into grace. So we find this grace in the gospel of Christ. In an ideal state, there is really no need for any law other than the love of God within our hearts. But as things are, the case is very different. And here, Paul cites a catalog of sins which the law must control and condemn. The interest of this passage is, is that um, it shows us the background against the Christianity grew up. Now, I want you to think about the Ephesian church there in the first century and the way that people were living. And Paul is condemning all these sins and the sinful behaviors and shows us the context. We tend to think, well, back then it was easier. It doesn't have the crazy stuff that we see today. Well, there were a lot of bad stuff going on even back then. Nothing shows us so well how the Christian church was a little island of purity in a vicious world. We talk about being hard to be a Christian in modern civilization. We have only to read a passage like this to see how infinitely harder it must have been in the circumstances in which the church first began. So let us take a, a look at all these terrible words. So the first one there is lawless that the law was written for those who are lawless. They are those who know the laws of right and wrong and who break them open-eyed. No one can blame people for breaking a law they do not know exists, but the lawless are those that they, who deliberately violate the laws in order to satisfy their own ambitions and desires. And we have a second word there that he uses, the rebellious. The rebellious are the unruly or insubordinate people, those who refuse to obey an authority. These are like soldiers who mutinously disobey the word of their commander. They're either too proud or too lacking in self-restraint to accept any form of control. There's a third word there used, and it is the ungodly, where some, some translations translate it as irreverent. 
This is a terrible word. It describes not indifference nor a lapse into sin. It describes a positive, active form of irreligion. The spirit which defiantly withholds from God that which is his right. It described the human nature in direct conflict with God. So the ungodly is in direct conflict with God. And then the general word sinners. He also uses the general word sinners. The most common usage of this word describes character. It describes a person who has no moral standards left. And then uh, the next word there is for the unholy. It is the opposite of a noble word. Things which are holy are part of a constitution of the universe and the things which are all held sacred. The Greeks, for example, in ancient writing, they describe this, um, give an example of an unholy, um, unholy person. So the Greeks declared with a shudder that an Egyptian costume where a brother could marry a sister and the Persian costume where a son could marry a mother were unholy. They using that word even in ancient uh, literature. Um, so the person who is unholy is worse than a mere lawbreaker because such a person violates the ultimate decencies of life. I mean, every society, even those that do not have a Bible, they know they have a sense of right and wrong. Moving on here, he says the word that there is a profane. This is an ugly word with a strange history. It originally meant that which can be trod, tread, trodden upon as against which is sacred to some and therefore untouchable. It came to mean profane in opposition to sacred, so it's kind of related to the unholy word. And then the one who profanes the sacred things, the person who desecrates God's day, that disobeys his laws and belittles his worship. There are also those who kill their fathers and kill their mothers. Under the Roman law, a son who struck his parents could be put to death. And these words, the words describe sons and daughters who have no sense of gratitude, respect, or even shame. And it must always be remembered that this cruel of blows can be won not upon the body, but upon the heart. And then we have the murderers, where literally that word means the manslayers. Paul is thinking here of the Ten Commandments and how the breaking of these laws characterizes the Gentile world. But we not, must not think, as we look at murderers, right? Jesus came to even to explain the law better. Turn to Matthew 5, and I'm going to give you an example of that. So Paul is listing here all the commandments that people break. Breaking the, the honoring of father and mother, right? Breaking of do not murder, do not commit adultery. Matthew 5. Jesus is saying, you know, you, you heard this. But let me tell you. I just copied here. Let me. So Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told. You shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry 
with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you're good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So that gets in our case, doesn't it? The law leaves us quite hopeless because we know that we do break God's laws. There are the, then the immoral man and the homosexual. It, it, it's really difficult for us to realize the depth of the sexual immorality of that time. We think that we are living in, in, in a bad day and age, and I, I do see that. Um, just TV is just full of, of things, and the internet. Uh, there's a great deal of promiscuity. But back then, there was also that. I remember visiting the uh, city of Corinth, uh, the ancient city of Corinth in Greece, and they had this platform where the temple of Aphrodite was, the goddess of fertility and love, and where they would have a thousand prostitutes. And it was right on the top of a hill, that temple was, where people in the city would look at, you know, at night, and the lights would be burning, the candles will be current, uh, burning there, and they had a thousand prostitutes. So um, it is said that Solon was the first lawmaker in Athens to legalize prostitution, and that with prophets of public brothels, he instituted a new temple was built to Aphrodite, the, god, the goddess of love. So it is an extraordinary thing that outside of Christianity, time and again, immorality and obscenity uh, flourish under the protection of religion. It has often been said and said truly that chastity was the one completely new virtue which Christianity brought into this world. It's not an easy thing in the early days to endeavor to live according to the Christian ethic in a world like that. Within despairs and expressions of three or respective offenses are roughly the same. So the sexually immoral, the adulterers, the homosexuals, that refers all to sexual sin. Paul employs then a strong language, perhaps to highlight the degree of evil prevalent in the pagan world um, and the need of the law on the part of those who have not heard the gospel. So most expressions are self-explanatory as we read them. But I do want to give some time here to discuss this expression, homosexuals. Um, the first expression requiring the discussion is homosexuals. It's also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. The meaning of the word is reflected in its etymology, which literally means the one who lies or, or sleep, sleep with, with men. That is, those who engage in homosexual acts. The term, a new uh, denomination, probably echoes the prohibition of homosexuality in the Levitical Code. So Leviticus 18.22 has those prohibitions. Some have argued that this term, now this is interesting, because this passage, I don't know if you're, you know this, but this is one of the passages that are mostly attacked by more modern interpretators. They say, you know, this is, this is ancient, that some of these things, Paul was just condemning and restricting male prostitution and pederasty or other, um, refers merely to homosexual acts, not to include the celibate homosexual relationships. That is, people that refrain from 
sexual intercourse. But the New Testament teaching they maintain pertains only to the negative, dehumanizing pattern of homosexuality prevalent in a first century Hellenistic culture and does not apply to consensual, non-exploitive homosexual relationships today. That is the trend. That no, it is just condemning those awful practices of the past. It's not condemning sins of, of in your mind. However, the word homosexual is a broad term that is not limited to specific instances of homosexual activity, such as male prostitution or pederasty. The Old Testament equivalent, likewise, lying with a male is all-encompassing and relates to every kind of male-to-male intercourse. In fact, the Hebrew scriptures prohibit every type of homosexual intercourse, including consensual sex. Not merely male prostitution or intercourse with use. Also, while Paul focuses on homosexual acts, he would hardly have considered celibate homosexuals' relationship as legitimate. Since this was have exchanged the man's natural function for an unnatural one. So turn to Romans chapter 1. There is consistency in scripture. Um, when we try to interpret things, we need to see from, the, from all of it. So Romans chapter 1, verse 26. Why is it not tolerable any sort of homosexual relationship? Verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For the woman exchanged, and that includes women as well, and it's not just the man, Women exchange a natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also the man abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, man with man, committing indecent acts and receiving in their persons the due penalty of their error. I mean, this is a radical principle <laughs> for you to state you know, I affirm that the scripture says that homosexuality is a sin. Um, it is breaking of God's law. I mean, it is a sin like any other sin. It's like adultery. It's like murder. It's any other sin. It is like lying. Um, before God, yes, it is a, a heinous sin. But yet, it is a sin that is not unredeemable, that is not unforgivable. And God came to, to redeem some of that. We're getting there toward the end here. Um, they're the kidnappers. At that time, the kidnappers either could mean slave dealers or slave kidnappers. Possibly both are involved here. Um, Aristotle declared that in that civilization was founded in a slavery. So that certain men and women existed only to perform menial tasks of life for the convenience of the cultured classes. But even in the ancient world, voices were raised against the slavery. The Jewish writer uh, Philo spoke of the slave dealers as those who despoil man of their righteous possession, their freedom. But there's more probably refers to those who kidnapped the slaves. So slaves, they were a valuable property. 
Actually, it said that Marcus Antonius is said to have paid the equivalent of several thousand pounds for two well-matched youths who were wrongly represented to be twins. In the days when Rome was especially eager to learn the arts of Greece, the slaves were skilled in Greek literature, music, and art were particularly valuable. valuable. So the result was then, frequently, valuable slaves were either seduced from their masters and or they were kidnapped. The kidnapping of especially beautiful or especially accomplished slaves was a common feature of the ancient life. And then finally, we have here the liars and the perjurers. I, you know, and I, I want to I stop here um, and there and see. Paul is just trying to get at here is whatever breaks God's law. This, this is what was written, written for. The negative application of the law is for those who are sinners that break God's commandment. If I would stop the message here, it would be hopeless, wouldn't it? <laughs> but that's not our goal here. Um, and our last point, the gospel application of God's law. So verse 11, read it with me. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. So that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, this sound doctrine that Paul is speaking of literally means teaching that brings the spiritual health. The idea, of course, throughout the, all the pastoral epistles. What Paul says here, it also indicates that the law and the gospel are not at odds with each other, but actually they harmonize. One needs to learn of the bad news first to know that they have broken God's law, they have broken God's law, and they are going to be punished for it. That's the glory of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness of those sins. So the sound doctrine, I want to draw your attention here. Let's flip a few pages. Uh, bear with me here. First Timothy 6, 3. You're going to see the same word there. Same expression of sound doctrine, the gospel, this sound doctrine that saves First uh, Timothy 6, verse 3 says, If anyone advocates doctrine and does not agree with sound words, there you go, sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ or with a doctrine conforming to godliness. Second um, Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, you can flip there as well. Second um, Timothy 1, 13 Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me, sound words being repeated there, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 Timothy. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And then lastly, if you flip a few more pages, Titus 1.9. Holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that you'll be able to both exhort in sound doctrine, same thing, sound words, and to refute those who contradict. So this sound teaching, what does that mean? 
It means that it's health-giving. It's life-giving. It demands the living of a good life. It also, it must always be remembered that Christianity does not mean observing a ritual, even if that ritual consists of Bible reading or church going. It means living a good life. Christianity, if it is real, is health-giving. It is moral antiseptic, which alone can cleanse life. It purifies us. Secondly, it says that the glorious gospel... The glorious gospel is the good news. It is the good news of forgiveness of past sins and power, of power to conquer sin when the day comes. Good news of God's mercy, of God's cleansing us from all impurity, of God's grace. The gospel is glorious because it is brilliant, shining revelation that the very being of God in a person and a work of Jesus Christ it is also glorious because it has the power to transform believers into the glorious moral and spiritual likeness of Jesus Christ. I mean, we read Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for what? For the good of those who love God. And what good is that? Is that I have a happy, good life? Is that that I would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? So the person who I was, the old creature that I was, I'm no longer. I'm a new creation in Christ. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about us being transformed day by day. The person that I was yesterday is not the person that I am today because Christ, through his gospel, is transforming us. That should bring us to praise. I'm going to close with one more passage here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 9 through 11, these gospel that was entrusted to us, that came to us lawbreakers, why did that come to us? First Corinthians chapter 6, um, it's 9 and 11, we, we read this passage and it's kind of sad. Paul is saying, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But there's the beauty of the gospel, verse 11. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That should be a great encouragement to us, that the more we know Christ and we know his law, we are being transformed. We are changing into his image. Praise God for the glorious gospel that was entrusted to us, really. In this passage, and in fact, the entire letter, Paul exhibits here in conclusion a great zeal for keeping the church free from error, and in particularly legalism that threatens the purity of the Christian gospel of salvation by grace through faith apart from works. For the false teachers of his day, a scrupulous attention to the minutiae of Jewish law with genealogies 
with um, all sorts of speculations. That was essential and salvation apart from obligation to the observance of a plethora of unthinkable rules. But the Christian gospel is one of sheer grace because it is based on what Christ has done on the cross without any contribution of our own. For this reason, grateful acceptance of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, not self-effort, it is the proper response to God's law. Even in our day where the gospel is subverted in perhaps more subtle ways, we must be vigilant to preserve the notion that salvation is by grace alone and firmly resist the intrusion of any contradictory message into the church. Let's pray. God, we are thankful. We're thankful for your law that tells us your demands for us. Your law is good because it points us in the right way to live. And yet, Lord, we know that your law condemns us because we are all lawbreakers. But we are thankful that in Jesus Christ, who came to fulfill it perfectly, to obey it perfectly, you gave us the ability to now have a relationship with you. Lord, and as we reflect on what you've done for us, on the gospel of Jesus Christ, may we praise you, Lord, for the great privilege of forgiveness that we do not need to live with guilt and shame anymore because you have bore on the cross all our shame and guilt for our sins. And we are thankful. Um, In Jesus' name, amen.